I want to start this morning in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. I've, uh, I've got in my heart to read a lot of scriptures this morning. And, um, well, let's just start in Mark chapter 5. Verse 21, it says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? That's King James English for saying everybody's touching you. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he said unto them, Why make you this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, Peter, James, and John, and entered into where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. This story, particularly about the woman with the issue of blood that uh, is surrounded by the story of Jairus and his daughter. The story of the woman with the issue of blood is probably the most concise example of anything that we have about how faith brings results. It talks about the fact that she heard of Jesus. Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word. We know that it was her faith that did the work, because Jesus said in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. He didn't even credit the power of God as doing it. Now, we know the power of God did it. He felt power go out of him. She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. That must mean, in my thinking, 
that she felt the power of God go into her. She felt something, so I would assume it was the power. Jesus felt the power go out of him, so we know that it was the power of God that changed the circumstances or condition of her body. But Jesus credits her faith. So this is a perfect example of how faith activates the power of God for whatever you need. Faith that we hear from the Word of God, built into our hearts, acted on through her words and actions. She began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be whole. And then she acted on it. She came to where he was so she could touch his clothes. We have a perfect example of faith, how it comes, how it's exercised, how it's released, and what it produces. But notice in the middle of this, I've always been intrigued by Jairus. Because as great as the story of the woman with the issue of blood is, as important as it is in our understanding of how faith works and so forth, if I was Jairus, I'd be ripped that Jesus was stopping and waiting to find somebody. If I was Jairus, I'd want him at my house as quick as possible. He said, my daughter's at the point of death. But it's like Jesus is just out for a stroll. I would have wanted him to get to my house as quickly as possible. I'd carry him if I had to. And I certainly might be guilty of tugging on his coat when he stops and tries to figure out who the, woman with, who, who the person was that touched his, his garment. So the worst thing from Jairus' point of view, from a father's standpoint, the ultimate in bad news comes right at the end of Jesus finding out about the woman and hearing the story. And you know how women tell stories. (laughs) Never make fun of the person that comes to the microphone next. She's got to be going into details. She's got to be filling in the blanks with every little bit of pertinent information. We read this quickly, but remember a man wrote this. So he just boiled down the important stuff. I can just imagine this has taken a lot longer than J.R.'s would have wanted it to. Don't you think? I mean, even if it is a short event, I'd be in a hurry to get him to where I wanted him to be. But here's the worst possible news that you could imagine. It's too late. Your daughter's dead. Notice what Jesus does. Let me read it again in verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, these words mean instantly. As soon as he heard, Jesus heard the report of the daughter's death. As soon as he heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Be not afraid, only believe. Now, folks, this guy, Jairus, does just that. It's interesting to me what's left out of this story, what wasn't said, 
Jesus didn't say, oh, shucks. I was hoping we'd get there in time. But now this is not a matter of healing anymore. Now this is a totally different thing. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't tell him to pray differently or start speaking differently than he did before. Jesus simply said, be not afraid, only believe. Be not afraid, only believe. What does Jesus know in this situation that the person bringing the report of the daughter doesn't? The guy that comes from his Jairus' house, we don't know who it is. We don't know if it's family, friends, maybe just one of the leaders of the synagogue too. Whoever it is says it's too late. Jesus didn't. The person with the report of your daughter is dead is saying it's too late. Don't bother with Jesus anymore. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus knew it wasn't too late. And the faith that, the, that Jairus had exercised as evidenced by what he said, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come heal her. Come lay your hands on her that she may be healed. That was sufficient faith for Jesus to use in performing one of the greatest miracles that I can imagine. What is a greater miracle than raising the dead? What greater display of power is there than raising the dead? Now, as far as God's concerned, power is power. God doesn't have raising the dead power and then healing power and then power to prosper you or power to bring you peace. It's all the life of God. It's all power. And the power of God, the life of God, is available for whatever we need it to perform. And so as far as Jesus is concerned, and from God's point of view, we'd have to say, exercising faith in God's power in any respect is sufficient to do the greatest miracle that there is. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Only believe. What does Jairus do from that point on? Folks, we don't have any record that Jairus has said anything past when he first came to Jesus and said, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her and she'll be healed. That's the last thing we hear about Jairus is saying. That's the last thing recorded that he said. He doesn't say another word. At least that's the way the story is that's the important part that the Holy Ghost wants us to get. What he said was enough. What he said was enough. How many times are we um, tempted, well, certainly it's temptation, but har harassed by the devil about the operation of faith? How many times do we hear, for whatever we're standing for, whatever we're exercising our faith to receive. Look how many times the devil comes and tells us we've got to say. He tries to tell us we're not saying it enough. 
He tries to tell us we're not saying it sincerely enough. He tries to tell us that we don't have enough faith and we better get busy and do this, that, and the other if we're going to receive. And, of course, his purpose is to try to stop us from receiving, not to help us along. Jairus says one thing to Jesus. My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her and she'll be healed, that she may live and not die. That's all he says. And that's enough. Words of faith spoken from the heart are sufficient. Now notice what Jesus does when he gets to his house. Jesus knows that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That brought Jairus to him to begin with. Jesus also knows that faith is exercised by speaking the word. We saw that with the woman with the issue of blood. We see that even with Jairus. Jesus doesn't tell him, don't be afraid, or you better get in belief. He doesn't tell him anything about his manner of believing. He didn't tell him anything about how to improve on his faith or his believing. But Jesus knows that faith is exercised or released through words. And so Jesus says something at Jairus' house. He says, why are you guys making this fuss? She's not dead. She's just asleep. See, Jesus exercised faith the same way he expects us to. Well, that made him the laughing stock of the crowd. Now, they tell us, or in history records for us, that death in Judaism is a, well, it's a tumultuous thing. Because when somebody dies or when somebody's expected to die, the more people that are there mourning the death shows the importance of the person who lost their loved one. So you've got Jairus, who's the ruler of the synagogue, with his daughter at the point of death. And apparently she's been that way for some period of time, certainly long enough for Jairus to get from his house to Jesus. There's going to be a bunch of people There's going to be a house full of folks. They even had professional whalers. They had people that would come in just for the purpose of grieving the loss of a a loved one. For the benefit, I guess, of the family. It was a prestige thing. So there was a big crowd. Big crowd. And Jesus sets himself up to be the laughing stock of the crowd. Because faith sometimes makes you look foolish in other people's eyes. So he puts them all out. Only the father and the mother, who still don't say a word. Peter, James, and John. Peter has the good sense not to say anything now either. And he tells the daughter to arise. Simple faith. Now, we have a tendency to see things in a lot different way, in a lot different manner than God sees things. See, faith is a contract with God. From his point of view, the hearing of the word which produces faith that is released by word and action, as far as God's concerned, that can't fail. It cannot fail. 
He made an earth by faith, by speaking words. He made a part of the spiritual forces that govern this world. Just like there are natural forces, forces of nature, natural laws, physical laws, laws of physics that govern this place. There are spiritual laws that govern it too. And Jairus has put in effect a spiritual law. And Jesus' only warning, the only word that he says to him that we have recorded at least, the only thing that Jesus says to Jairus is, don't change the spiritual law. Don't change the spiritual law. See, the spiritual law, folks, is that according to your words, so shall it be. The spiritual law is that you will have what you say. So the only thing Jesus says is don't change what you're saying. That's what be not afraid, only believe means. You remember in the Old Testament, the 10 spies, the 12 spies went into the promised land to spy out the land. 10 of them come back with an evil report. The Bible says they brought up an evil report saying, saying, we can't take the land. The people in the land are stronger than us. The spiritual law is very clear and it never changes. You will have, you do have what you say. And that's what Jesus addresses. Don't be afraid, only believe. Don't change what you've said. And it was sufficient. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 41, please. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. God says to his people, belong to the people of the Old Testament, it belongs to us today. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, there are some different um, translations, different words and and so forth. The translation is throughout the, um, at least the ones I have access to, some 50-odd translations, different translations. They all read pretty much the same. There's a a little bit of difference. Young's translation, for example, writes this in or presents this in past tense rather than I will uphold thee I have upheld thee and so there's a little difference there but for for the most part this uh, verse of scripture is translated consistently throughout uh, a great number of translations and notice what it says it says fear thou not fear thou not the bible says 365 times 365 times is the phrase, fear not or be not afraid. Isn't that an interesting number? Hmm? Oh, one for each day of the year. That's what that was about. 365 times it says, be not afraid or fear not. It's almost like God's trying to make a point. So he says, fear thou not, neither be I, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Notice this word dismayed. It's, um, well, it's not a difficult word to translate, but for me, looking at the source of the, or the definition of the original wording, 
help some. Because it's, uh, one translation says this way. Here's one difference in uh, a translation. It says, neither be thou broken down. Neither be broken down. But it really doesn't uh, mean to be broken down unless you look at the word picture, which the Hebrew language is terrific for having those. The word picture about this is don't be bewildered. But then that goes a little further because it's talking about being bewildered by what you see. The, the, um, The most accurate translation of this would be something along the lines of don't be broken down by what your circumstances look like. Don't be bewildered. Don't be amazed. Don't be in wondering because of the circumstances you're in. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Don't be moved by the circumstances, for I am your God. If we could peel back everything about this natural realm, and the Bible says God will do that someday. The Bible says God will roll back the sky so that people on the earth, this is during, at the end of the tribulation period, so that people on the earth can see heaven. So heaven is not a distance away. Wouldn't make any difference if God rolled back the sky, peeled back the sky like a curtain. If heaven was 300 trillion light years away. There is what seems to be a thin membrane between the natural realm and the between the natural realm and the spiritual realm. And there will come a time where God will just peel back the sky and everybody will be able to see the spirit realm. Well, if heaven is that close, one membrane away, shouldn't we act like it's there? Shouldn't we conduct ourselves in such a way that we acknowledge that it's there? It won't just appear because God peels back the sky. It's there now. But we can't see it with the natural eye. And that's enough for many people to ignore it, I guess. But wouldn't the takeaway point from that be not to be afraid of or afraid of or worried by or governed by what things look like here? Because there is an unseen realm, there are unseen forces. There's an unseen God in heaven who has provided for us the means to overcome anything and everything that's here in this natural realm. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, folks, is there any way that this verse of Scripture could be true and it was possible for us to go under? If this verse of Scripture is true, you can't go under. If this verse of Scripture is true, you cannot be too weak for your situation. If this, situ- if this Scripture is true, it's impossible for you not to be helped by the Holy Ghost to overcome wherever you're at. If it's true. 
You decide whether or not it is. You don't decide for eternity whether or not it is, but you decide for yourself whether or not it's true. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I'm going to read now from uh, Joshua chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, his assistant in other words, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you, as I said unto Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. If I was Joshua, I'd think... This is a pretty good gig. This is going to be great. Victory is assured. Now notice the next thing he says in verse 6. He says, be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. If God's going to do all this stuff that he talked about and be with him like with Moses, nobody be able to stand before him all the days of his life, what does he have to be strong and courageous about? Why is it so necessary for him to be strong and courageous? Folks, there's only one answer that makes any sense, and that is it's not going to always look like he's winning. It's not going to always look like he's going to come out on top. You know, the Bible tells us that God created the temple or gave instruction to man to build the temple in a certain way. And the inner sanctum was the Holy of Holies. And there was a curtain that separated that part of the temple from the outer court. Still inside the temple building, temple walls. But there was a very specific place where the glory of God meaning the power of God, dwelt before Jesus went to the cross. And one of the things that uh, history teaches us is that people that went in there, the only people that were allowed to go in was was the high priest, and that after great precaution, and that only one time a year after he's made an offering for the sins of the people. And if anybody went in unprepared or poorly prepared, or at the wrong time, they fell dead instantly. It was such a real thing for them that the high priest, even when he went in, he'd tie a rope around his leg, around his ankle, so that if something happened in there and he fell dead, they'd be able to get him out. I wonder what a reminder that rope around the high priest's ankle was. It certainly would have to be a reminder to take his job seriously, wouldn't it? 
This is not a joking matter. Well, the Bible says, now that life of God is in us through Jesus. The same life, the same power, the same glory of God that caused people to fall dead under the wrong circumstances or if they were not careful about what they were doing, now that resides in us. When I think about what God promised Joshua, no man will be able to stand before thee forever or all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I would be with you. Wouldn't it be great if that power was in us like it was in the Holy of Holies and we could use it the way we wanted to so that the right people might experience the ill effect of it? (laughs) Can you imagine what a different place this world would be if it was under our control to find wicked people and just shake hands with them? This would be a whole different world. That's the kind of victory that God's promising Joshua. But then he says, be strong. Only be strong and very courageous. He's going to have to be strong sometimes and remind himself that God said he would win all of his battles. Because not every battle is going to look like a win. Not every victory is going to be apparent from the beginning. So he says, only be strong and have good courage. Being strong and of good courage doesn't exactly mean don't fear, but it does mean don't let fear set your course. Don't let fear set your course. Is that not the same thing that Jesus just told Jairus? Be not afraid, only believe. Don't let fear change your course. Don't let fear put you on a new track. You've expressed your faith. You've released your faith in what you've said before. Don't change directions. Now, if there was ever a time or a situation for somebody to to think that it was too late, to think that this would be a time to change course, it would be when Jairus heard that his daughter was dead. But that's the point Jesus says, stay where you are. Be not afraid, only believe. So he tells Joshua, verse 6, Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Verse 7, only be thou strong and very courageous. If God's saying it twice, He must be serious about it. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Notice what he tells him to be strong and courageous in or for. He says be strong and of good courage to do what the word says. In other words, it's, if, if we put it into a New Testament context, and, and everything in the Old Testament is for types and shadows, or as types and shadows for us. So there's a, a New Testament connotation, a New Testament parallel for what God tells us in relation to what he told Joshua. He tells Joshua, be strong to do the word. For us, that would be, would be, be strong to believe God's word and to speak it. 
to use your faith, to release your faith, no matter what it looks like. No matter what it looks like. How many times are we tempted, bombarded, and harassed by the devil to try to make us doubt the simplicity and the truth of God's word? We've got clear instruction from the word what Jesus did do and what he didn't do for us. What he did do was pay the price for sin and death. What he did do was take sickness upon himself so that we didn't have to bear it. What he did do was pay the price for our provision, our financial well-being, well-being in every area. Without, without question, the Bible says he did that. Now, some part of the church not just the modern day church, but this has gone back for a long time. Some people will say that that stuff, the healing and prosperity and the other things that the Bible includes uh, that Jesus paid the price for, they'll say that doesn't belong to us nowadays. But the Bible says it does. You can explain it away. You can make excuses if you want to. But it doesn't change the fact the Bible says it's there. It's almost like God left it up to us to decide what we would have. It's almost like it's up to us as the spiritual parallel for what he told Joshua, every place the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Everything the Bible says Jesus did for you will be yours if you take it by walking in faith. So where your spiritual foot treads, that'll be yours too. And remember, we walk by faith and not by sight. So he says, only be strong that you may do the word. Then verse 8, this wonderful scripture in verse 8 that gives us the pattern, the path for success. This book of the law, the word of God in other words, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. We make our own way prosperous through the word, folks. We make our own way prosperous through the believing of God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And the exercise of that faith by words that we speak. Verse 9. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Third time. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Now, folks, the Bible says God's no respecter of persons. If God is telling Joshua something specific for him that doesn't belong to us, then that would make him a respecter of persons. In other words, in order for him to be truthful in saying that he's no respecter of persons, he's got to provide the same path for success for you that he provided for Joshua. Thank God he did. Thank God he did. Thank God he did. So he says, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Exactly the same phrase in Isaiah 41, verse 10. God's saying for the same reason, because I'm with you. He said, I'll see you through. I'll make victory yours. 
I'll make victory yours. Turn with me to the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23, verse 1. This is a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm full of wants. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. This, uh, this phrase, he restoreth my soul, in one translation, uh, well, the word restore means to go back to original condition. That's kind of cool, isn't it? He restoreth my soul, and of course he does that through the word. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Folks, notice this is the valley of the shadow of death, not the valley of death. I don't know if you realize this or not, if you've ever really thought about it, but shadows can't hurt you. And you know how some people are skilled and they do those hand shadow puppet type stuff? They can take just the, the hand, the, the positioning of their hand, and make it look like some mean critter is coming after you. I think that's the way the devil does. What the shadow is intended to make you fear isn't really there. I know in my life, most of the things that I've been afraid of never have come to pass. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Folks, please notice this is not fast food on the run. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. God wants the devil to see you win. He wants the devil, his enemy, and your enemy by course. He wants the devil to see you victorious. He wants the devil to see you take the word and beat back everything he's got. That's what God wants. That's what the will of God is. Now, we can put our own interpretation on that. See, when we talk about things like that, you can come away with the idea that Walking by faith and walking in victory means you'll have comfort and blessings and good feelings and sunny skies every day for the rest of your life. And the Bible doesn't promise that. It just promises that you win. No matter what your day is, rainy or sunny, you win. No matter what the devil does, and no matter how long he tries to bring something against you, by the power of God within us, we win. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely, certainly, absolutely, definitively, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 27. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Neither be thou dismayed, for I am thy God. I will help thee. 
I will strengthen thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Acts 27, beginning in verse 9, it says, Now when much time was spent and sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. This is on his journey to Rome when he's appealed to Caesar. Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Notice he didn't tell, him God, he didn't tell the sailors, the captain of the ship, that God had told him something. He said, Sirs, I perceive. He's operating by the inward witness here. He's operating by that something on the inside. That something is the presence of God on the inside. The Holy Ghost that will guide our steps and show us things to come. He's got something on the inside that's telling him, this is not a good move to make. This is not a good move to make. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part, that means the, the biggest part of the crew, advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenix and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. Please notice the people that are operating not according to the spiritual laws that Paul has just shared with them, not according to the warning that he's received on the inside of his spirit. They say, no, this isn't a good place to win or let's try to make it to somebody's better. And then the circumstances changed. Then there was a soft wind. Everything that would make a sailor think this is going to be good things. But folks, if you're just going by the circumstances, you're going to be hopelessly outnumbered by the devil's forces. So a soft wind blew. So the sailor said, yeah, see, this will be great. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Euroclidant or something. Now, if a wind has a name, <laughs> that might be an indication that this is not a good thing. They named this wind, which tells me it's not uncommon. And when the ship was caught, it could not bear up into the wind and could not bear up under the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. Folks, even in good weather, this is not a good trip. There's a lot of dangers out there. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. They're trying to do everything they can to make this ship lighter. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, how many is many? They've got cloudy skies morning and night. There's no way to navigate by the stars. When neither sun nor stars in many days appeared and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. 
This is a pretty dire circumstance. But after long absence, that means Paul hadn't said anything since they left, I guess. After long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul. Thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit, we must be cast upon a certain island. Paul's a good guy to have in your boat. Now, let me ask you a question. Why hadn't Paul rebuked this storm? At the time that this occurs, we know for a fact that Matthew and Mark's gospels have already been written. No question that Paul has read through these gospels. Maybe on many occasions. We don't know for sure that Luke's gospel was written by this time. Luke was part of the company, apparently, that's on board the ship. It was written about the time that these things happened, but we can't be sure one way or another. John's gospel is a good 30 years off from being written. But if he's read, if Paul is familiar with the gospels of Matthew and Mark, then there are several occasions that he knows about from the disciples, firsthand from the disciples. And maybe he's even talked to some of these disciples and heard stories, these stories firsthand. There may be things that he's heard and knows about that he didn't even have to read the Gospels that they wrote. These people are still alive during these days. Many of them at least. So he's read where Jesus has rebuked storms. He's read where Jesus tells the wind and the sea to cease. Peace be still. Why didn't he do that? Paul's the one that's telling us about the authority that we have over the devil and all the devil's forces. Why isn't Paul rebuking this storm? Is there anybody in the planet that thinks that he hadn't tried? Is there anybody anywhere that knowing Paul's relationship with God, knowing the information that he receives from Jesus himself, the revelation that he's gotten even up to this point. Is there anybody in their right mind that would think that Paul either hasn't rebuked the storm or has already gotten information from the Lord that he can't? Now the same promise of victory is Paul's that was Joshua's. He's got the same promises that you and I have. He's got the same promise of victory. But notice what victory sometimes looks like. It looks like a never-ending storm. It would make sense, therefore, for the Bible to tell us, as it does, that, Paul t- that uh, God told Joshua three different times, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. 
Even these hardened sailors have given up by this point. This is not just some charismatic preacher that's saying, thus saith the Lord. Everybody on board knows the trouble they're in. And Paul was not only the warning to avoid the trouble, but he's the good news that they'll escape. Well, this made everybody on board happy. They're willing to listen to him now, I guess. But then notice the beginning in verse 27. It said, but when the 14th night was come. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if it means the 14th night from the beginning of this trip. Or if it means 14 nights after Paul says the angel appeared to him. We don't know. We know that the scripture has just said, we just read a moment ago, that after many days they didn't see the sun and the moon. Well, would many days be included in those 14 days? Most Bible scholars seem to believe that there was a period of time for the storm, then the vision that Paul had of the angel, and then 14 more days. As such, many estimate this storm to be about a 21-day storm. Now, I don't know if that's right or not. And I haven't found anything from the text itself that would identify it one way or another conclusively. So we know that it was at least two weeks of storm. You ever been on a ship when it was rocking? We took one of these uh, uh, Mediterranean or Greek island trips over the last couple of years. And there were some real rough seas on one trip. And there was crew members that were getting sick. And most of the people on board the ship were in trouble. They bought out everything they had for Dramamine and every, all the patches and all the other things. And everybody's just walking around for several days looking green, you know, trying to hold on to things going one place or another. And the crew was marveling at the, at the other crew members that were ill. I didn't get sick. I was blessed not to be sick. The only thing that got me close was watching other people be sick. <laughs> but this is the terrible storm that Paul and his company are in. When the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. And sounded and found it 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it 15 fathoms. They're running out of sea. Then fearing, lest we should be fallen or have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea, under color, meaning pretending as though they would have cast anchors out of the four ship. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these men abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. These people leave the ship, you're going to die. Notice he didn't say we're going to die. Paul's going to be brought before Caesar. Whether anybody makes it with him or not is up to them. So the soldiers, upon hearing that, cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat. 
This is too bad a storm for people to be eating. So Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the 14th day that you have tarried and continued fasting. Again, it doesn't mean it's a 14-day trip. It means it's been 14 days since they've eaten. Again, imagine the severity of the storm. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. For there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were all in the ship, 203 score and 16. That's 276 people, right? 203 score and 16 souls. This is not a little rowboat. This is a big ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore under the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands. Looks like the storm's ending. Looks like blue skies are on the horizon. When they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoised up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. And following into a place where two seas meet, they ran the ship aground and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable. But the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. Even when the storm's over, they're still in danger. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded them that they, they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and to get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, and it came to pass that they escaped all safe to the land. Have you got a picture of what victory looks like now? If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That's what victory looks like. We're going to have, there are going to be times in our lives where we're going to have walls of Jericho falling type victories. There are times in our life where we're going to have multiplying fishes and loaves type of victories. But there are also times where you're going to have three weeks worth of storms type victories too. And Paul's victory is not less than Joshua's. Came in a different way. But it's still victory. It's still victory. In fact, it seems like through the storm victories, to us, doesn't make any difference to God. But to us, it can seem that going through the storm type of victories are even greater because you had to trust God every moment of the trip. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. 
Folks, whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing, doesn't change God a bit. Doesn't change his promise of victory for you one little bit. The Bible says, Jesus said three times during his earthly ministry, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never fail. God's word can't fail. This is not even a matter of God making good his word on your behalf. His word is spoken. It must be. The word can't possibly fail because it's God's word. Because God said it. And God is God. Jesus told the disciples in Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. I think a lot of times we take that and we try to, well, it's what the Lord said to me, the phrase he said to me some years ago in a different situation with the church. He said, you're trying to micromanage things by your faith. He said, trust me for the end result. I was trying to control every little thing. Lord, I believe for this, make this happen. Lord, I believe for this, make this happen. And he directed me just to believe him for the victory. Let him work it out. That seems to be the place where Paul is during this trip. In Acts 27. He's of the conviction, the belief. He's convinced. That no matter what happens with the storm. He never promised them the end of the storm. He never said, the Lord told me that we'd be all right, so the storm will end next Friday. And, of course, we're trying to get out of the storms as quickly as possible. We want the storm to end, whatever it is, whether it's financial, whether it's physical, whatever it is. We want the storm to end right now. We want to be like Jesus and stand up in the middle of the ship and say, peace, be still. Well, thank God that's victory. But that's not the only way victory comes. Fear not, for I am with thee. Is there anything that can keep him from being with you? Not according to the word. God said several times, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Well, if he's with you, he never loses. So you can't lose. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for victory. No matter what it looks like, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're faced with, your word has assured us victory. So, Lord, by faith, we accept your word to be true. We thank you that we have the victory over sickness and disease. We thank you that we have the victory over lack and poverty. We thank you that we have the victory over any and every work of the devil that comes against us. We thank you, Father, for victory. We thank you also, Father, for peace. For your word says, we which have believed do enter into rest. We lean back over on you, Lord. We trust in you and what your word declares for us. We trust you, Father. So we count it joy 
we rejoice no matter what it looks like knowing the end result the outcome must be the victory that you promised us we thank you father for being so good to us we refuse to fear we refuse to speak fear we refuse to speak doubt we choose to do even as you told Jairus be not afraid only believe thank you that that's enough father we've thrown ourselves over on your mercy we've established the word of God in our lives as a foundation so we say with Paul we believe that it shall be even as it was told us thank you father for seeing us through in Jesus precious name amen amen let's all stand let's take a moment before we leave the place let's take a moment and just lift our hands and thank God for victory wherever you are whatever you're in just you and him draw a circle around you and him and thank him for seeing you through thank him that the victory is yours John said this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith thank him for your victory thank you Father thank you Lord thank you Jesus for paying the price thank you Jesus for making us one with our Father thank you that your word never fails so we shout victory 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 is ours victory is ours we love you Father we thank you for being so good to us in Jesus name amen say it with me victory is mine mine. amen I will not fear Because victory is mine. mine. Amen. Amen. Have a great day. Come be with us at Food Court Sunday if you can. And you're dismissed.